Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. What have you gained or learned from Black culture? I've gained my whole life in a way. Mm. You know, I've, I've gained my my whole understanding. And here's what I would say. I have a much clearer sense of my own racial identity. Mm. I understand my own whiteness. And I understand my place in the world much better. And when I hear of white people who who don't have that that sense, that sensibility, that they, they can't even understand that their their own race is a race, that it's not the default, that it's not the norm. There's something there's something so ignorant about that and and oblivious yeah. and and unable to see people clearly. Yeah. And and I guess I would say, what do I learn or what have I gained? Uh, I've gained a greater understanding of myself and through that seeing the rest of the world much more clearly. More clearly more clearly more clearly more clearly Welcome to Wow Black. A seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while Black. If Black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all Black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. That would be when Art normally speaks up and says, welcome back, welcome back. But he is at swimming practice with his daughters tonight, so daddy time is always important. But we have an amazing episode, and one that I honestly think you'll get a ton of benefit from. And I'm going to tell you why. Because if you think about the state of this country today, politics and race relations, and then your relationships and how they've changed and morphed inside of what's happening in this country. That's where we're going today. And, and we've got two amazing guests today that are from the podcast, Some of My Best Friends Are. But inside of that conversation, we're talking about cross-racial relationships, which is something that's been top of mind for me during many moments in the last five or so years, really since Trump came into office. I've watched <laughs> many of my own relationships with non-Black folks and specifically with white folks change. Some relationships disappeared especially as I read Facebook posts that told me how they really felt and I took them personal because these were personal acquaintances. Some just morphed into different type of relationships through fierce and emotional conversations. And some new relationships were birthed, born as I recognized people around me that were allies and accomplices that we had never connected before. Because connection across the racial aisle, so to speak, is important, but also difficult as hell at times. Mm. It's because sometimes we don't feel like being bothered. Sometimes it's because we know it's going to be a fight because this person just doesn't get it. And sometimes we just, we just can't. Like, I just can't today. I can't do it. But whether at work or at play, the thoughts, at least for me, come in waves that are mixed, mixed with emotions and endless messages, things like, is this person an ally or an enemy? Can I trust them? I don't feel like explaining who I am today. Oh, I can tell this guy's racist. I don't even want to have that conversation. And am I going to have to lay these hands on somebody in this moment? All thoughts that I have had personally. But as I think back through history, and I consider our wins when it comes to racial and social justice, I honestly don't remember a fight where we stood completely alone at the victory line. I don't remember the victories that were void of folks from other races or other cultures. I just don't. I think about Selma 
and the images from the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And I think about who I saw there. It wasn't just us. And what that tells me is if we have any hope of creating a world dripping with equality, that we had better find a way to cross that aisle. And that's why I'm excited about today's guests. They are lifelong friends. Best friends, I might add. They grew up together on the south side of Chicago. Today, one is a Harvard professor and the other an award-winning journalist. Together, they are hosts of the podcast, Some of My Best Friends Are. And to tie them to this episode even further, one is black and one is white. So with that, I want to welcome Mr. Khalil Muhammad and Mr. Ben Austin to the show. Fellas, welcome to Wild Black. Wow, what an incredible introduction. I mean, you know, aside from the sultriest tones <laughs> of the heaviest of commentary about one of the most relevant issues of our time. I mean, it's like a combination of, uh, of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail and quiet storm. So I am Everybody really, really to happy quiet to be storm. here. <laughs> yeah, we, we, need you, we need you around to introduce us every day. Exactly. <laughs> well, that was wonderful. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Honestly, some intros are just easy to sit back, close my eyes, and let them flow because I'm so close to it. And, and when we had our pre-call, the thing that I kept thinking all the time is, I wonder how they did it, right? And, and that was, that's really all I thought about in that moment because I have had friends all the way from high school. We're talking about in the 90s. We're disassociated now because of what's happened in the last five or six years. They didn't like things I said. I didn't like things they said. And there's got to be a better way to maintain our relationships. There's got to be a way to not let politics destroy, not let differences of opinion destroy. And so that's why I'm glad you all are here. Listen, why don't you tell the folks just a little bit more about you, and then we'll kind of jump into this thing. Yeah, why don't you go first, Khalil? We were 14 years old, uh, growing up in a middle-class, integrated community, uh, surrounded uh, by people who were affiliated with the University of Chicago, people who were doing civil rights work, Operation Push, which is Jesse Jackson's yeah. headquarters, uh, which is, was in, is in the neighborhood that we grew up in, the headquarters of the Nation of Islam there. It's just this crazy quilt of a community that lent itself to the kind of normal relationship across the color line that is not representative of the United States of America. And I think that's really important because even though we lived in that community, we still had to work at this relationship. And I say that in this way, I was never for Ben like the black guy who gave, who made him cool. It was just the opposite in, in a way. You know, Ben, I mean, I was bit, a bit nerdier. Um, ben was a little cooler. Um, you know, the, the things that we were interested in, we shared in common, but there was no exotic other in the relationship. Right. And Ben's parents happened to be two educators, one a college professor, one a high school teacher. And they were like the, the white folks who stayed behind. Um, meaning that in a community that had once been white and largely Jewish, um, had changed at some point and they stayed and they still live in that community. Yeah. So there were a lot of things supporting the relationship that we have uh, that were structural in a sense. And it, it wasn't so much the case that what happened with us was exceptional. What, what has turned out to be somewhat exceptional is that the relationship has endured for this long. Right. Uh, and so while both of us had plenty of high school buddies that we knew, uh, none of us, neither of us are as close to those people um, as we are to each other. And, and that's really a function of growing together and kind of seeing the world in similar ways and committing ourselves to making the relationship work. Yeah. Yeah. Just in case my wife listens to this, I will say that I, I went to prom <laughs> with her and we got married. So, that, that, that so, so far, that relationship has also endured. That's true, <laughs> yes. Shout out to the wife. We appreciate you. And, yes. And I was the third leg on many a date with, his, with Danielle, his wife, so. <laughs> cool. Well, now that the listeners have gotten a chance to know you a little bit better, I want to dig just a little bit deeper into that. I want them to know you just a bit 
bit better. It's time for our wild black shit. Now, our listeners know our wild black shit is three questions. The first two <laughs> questions are fun, Uh-oh. cool, laid back, and the last question is always the same. So, with that, you all ready? Yep. All right. Question number one. And I don't care who answers. I don't care. Actually, I want both of you all to answer. Let's get, let's get both opinions here. Okay. Who was the hardest character from the ones I'm about to list? And for bonus points, tell me the movie that they came from. Nino Brown, O-Dog, Doughboy, Bishop, or Cleo? Nino Brown, O-Dog, Doughboy, Bishop, or Cleo? I, I almost say Nino Brown because I, I hated uh, the Minister Society. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. Is, is an O-Dog from Barbershop, though? Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. No, that's Minister Society there. Oh. See, I'm I'm showing myself. I'm showing yeah, myself. Man. I'm sorry. This I is got good. You. No, this is you. good. This is like this you. is across racial. Like I need to uh, represent. Exactly. I, I got I got to hold your hand. At some point, you know, I, I grew I grew into my blackness, and you grew into your whiteness. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You might have had a, a lead on me 20 years ago. No shame. No shame. No shame here. No shame here. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Wesley Snipes and Nino Brown. Cool. Cool. I I can get with that. I can get with that. When I looked at the list, it was gonna it was gonna be either uh, Nino or, or or Cleo for me. So I'm, I'm gonna ride with Nino with you. All right. Second question, and I honestly would not want to be either one of you all to answer this question. One player never made it to the league. Who are you benching? And by benching, you bench their entire career, maybe even collegiate. They have no impact on the National Basketball Association mm. or basketball history at all, ever. They don't exist. Man. Michael cancel Jordan. Culture. That's it. Michael Jordan. Cancel plus. Michael Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, Magic, or Shaq. Dang. That's cold-blooded, man. First of all. It's <laughs> so cold-blooded. Like, first of all. I'm so glad I got three, quarter, three quarters of those dudes are still alive. So that, yeah. like, and I don't want any of them showing up at my so house. Obviously, so obviously, obviously, we're not going to say Michael Jordan. <laughs> I mean, like, like we, we're Chicagoans. We grew up in the, in the Jordan era. He if you did, no you might what. have to relocate immediately. No, no. I mean, I mean, in our hearts, we couldn't. We, we, you know, he provided yeah. us with so much joy and, and everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, so much joy. Not, not, not just joy, like two-piece fried chicken from Popeye's and a biscuit. It used to be that if yeah. they scored over 100 points and kept the opponents under 100, you, you, the next day you can get some free uh, chicken Rips. at Kentucky Rips. Fried, yeah. Damn. No, no, it wasn't Kentucky Fried. It was Popeye's. Was I think Popeyes, it was Popeye's two piece. It was a Kentucky Fried by the AMP. <laughs> no, man, you're wrong. You're wrong about that. I'm, I'm going I, with Shaq. I'm going with Shaq. What, what's, what's messed up is I would have said Kobe, but now I can't. You can't. No, you can't say you can't. Kobe. <laughs> you can't. You can't. No, no, I can't. No, you can't. You can't. But, so I would. I'm going to go with Shaq also. But Shaq is waiting in the wings. So yeah, Shaq. Yeah. All right, cool. I saw I figured, Shaq. Yeah. I, I figure minimally I could outrun Shaq. I might not yeah. outrun the others. Yeah, I saw Shaq at a party once, and we, we walked back outside, and, and there was a, a Mercedes out front that essentially had the front seat removed. Just so and we I was can like, oh, That's Shaq's car. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. I'm glad that wasn't my question. And on to the next. The last, our final question. Our signature question for Wild Black is this. What do you love most about life, Wild Black? Mm. Well, I'm gonna have to answer for Ben since uh, <laughs> since he can't take this one. I love the way in which black people can stand in any space and be visible and free. Yeah. I love yeah. that, and I'm gonna give you a quick example. So, a couple years ago. My wife and I were at a the jazz benefit fundraiser at Lincoln Center, one of the preeminent sites for celebrating jazz music in New York City, Columbus Circle. And uh, Wynton Marcellus is the 
director of the band. So this is this is big time. This is New York jazz big time. And there were two white donors being honored for an award for the money they'd given to support the center. And and, and of course, this is how this works, right? And I, there's no shade on these rich folks giving money. Right. But there were black people dancing all around them. There was the most amazing jazz music playing at one point. And they were so stiff in this moment. And I thought, I am so glad that black people can be free to embrace music. And not everybody can dance. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there was something in the, in the contrast of that moment that just made me proud to know that part of being free is also being able to move your ass when you feel like it. <laughs> Spot on. And I, and I feel that all the way through. All right, so, so Ben, what I want to do here is, this is a, a wild black first. I've never changed this question before. Mm. But especially mm. hearing Khalil's introduction where he talked about your family was a family that chose to stay, right? And, and we've yeah. talked about yeah. white flight, blockbusting, red line. We've talked about all these things on this show before. And, and, and so understanding that your family made the conscious decision to stay in that neighborhood and, and to this day is still in that neighborhood I would love your opinion on this question. I'll tweak it just a little bit for you. Okay. And don't let me down, man. Come on. <laughs> Keep it real. What have you gained or learned from black culture? What have I gained or learned from black culture? I mean, so my wife happens to be black also, okay. and including all my in-laws and so on. So I've gained my whole life in a way. Mm. You know, I've, I've gained my, my whole understanding and here's what I would say. I have a much clearer sense of my own racial identity. Mm. I, I understand my own whiteness. And I understand my place in the world much better. And when I hear other white people who, who don't have that, that sense, that sensibility, that they, they can't even understand that their, their own race is a race, that it's not the default, that it's not the norm. There's something... There's something so ignorant about that and, and oblivious yeah. and, and unable to see people <clears throat> clearly. Yeah. And, and I guess I would say, you know, so, you know, what do I, what do I learn or what have I gained? Uh, I've gained a greater understanding of myself and through that, seeing the rest of the world much more clearly. I'm not, I'm not blinded by my, own, by my own sort of racial ignorance, my, by my... Uh, yeah. But by my, you know, I guess you would say the, the white fragility, you know, is the term that's used yeah. a lot. Yeah. Ben, I absolutely love that answer. All right. So I'm going to move into the dope quote. The dope quote is something from history, religion, theology, science, math, entertainment, the arts, poetry, something, someplace that has impact on our episode today. Typically, it's, it's from the mouth of someone black, but today it's not. But it's mm -hmm. so fitting to the topic, and I want to read it and then have you all give me your thoughts on this quote. Okay, okay. Difference is of the essence of humanity. Difference is an accident of birth and should therefore never be the source of hatred or conflict. The answer to difference is to respect it. Therein lies a most fundamental principle of peace, respect for diversity, by John Hume. I know that was a little bit longer, but what did it bring to mind for each of you as I read it? You know, as we started to do this show, we've been hearing from people who are listening. And there's some people who hear and they want to talk about their cross-racial relationships or their kids who suddenly have black friends mm -hmm. or, you know, their white friend who is having troubles. And, you know, there, there are some people who want to say that they don't see difference as a way to express that they, they possess no racism. Right. You know, I don't see color. And, you know, that quote, that quote brings to light, like how, how invisible making that is. Like, what do you mean you don't see yeah. my difference? My difference is also who I am. Yeah. It's, it's, it's seeing it and not judging it. It's not making it lesser. It's not making it, as Khalil said, exoticizing it. Uh, 
you know, it's it's sort of a, you know, it's work to to understand difference, but but that is the the work we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. It's it's a difference you make with anyone when you become when you form a, a bond or a relationship. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to echo Ben's brilliance on that quote about the danger and the destructive ways in which this notion of colorblindness has actually led us uh, into some uh, dark alleys and dead ends over the last 40 or 50 years, because it has been the kind of governing ethos of how to solve for bigotry and prejudice. Yeah. I love that answer. And, and, and I want to slide into the main portion of our interview today. And we've, we've mentioned the podcast, Some of My Best Friends Are, a couple of times now. But we haven't really told the listeners what in the world it is. So let's start there. Break down for the listening audience what the show is. And just as importantly, what will they gain from listening? All right, I got, I got this. So this is a chat show between two best friends who are going to, sh- to model in the the authenticity, the clarity, and the commitment to truth of the world we live in through the prism of pop culture, politics, history, uh, you know, systemic analysis. Uh, we're going to cover just about everything that we think is an important conversation that people are already having, mm-hmm. but may not be having it in a way that is well-informed and honest. That's what this show, and so we want to have fun with it. We're going to call each other out uh, when necessary. We're going to reveal truths about our own lives. We're going to tell stories from our childhood. And the last thing I'll add is that the show is very much about our particular coming-of-age moment in the 1980s as children of the 80s, because so much of what we see as the problem today are the choices made in this country in that time period mm-hmm. that we live with in this moment. Absolutely. Two friends doing this who were, who were friends in the 2000s or the 1990s who would that have a somewhat different perspective. Khalil, I just want to say how, how that, that description was excellent. You really did a good Thank job. You. Thank you. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. That was like, that was like selling it to, uh, to Apple. <laughs> Like, I think we can get some big advertisers now. Let's get it. I I want that for you. I want it for you. So let's take it a step further, right? We we gave them a synopsis. Talk to them about an episode that you think they should tune into right now. Give them an overview. Tell them why that episode is the one you want them to hear and why they they will be so impacted by it. Yeah, so... So I'm going to say the first episode is not the episode that I'm going to mention, but I'm going to say the first episode, we talked about interracial buddy movies. And I'm just sort of describing the range of the show. And there's a kind of way that, you know, here we have this interracial buddy uh, podcast. And we're also, you know, exploring ideas that are expressed in these movies, which are reflected to us about representation. But like I, I said this before, that, that, and Khalil was just saying this about our, our bond and our closeness and the honesty, it's, it's, it's modeling a kind of relationship, but it's also a means for us to explore other things. Right. So mm-hmm. there's an episode that people should listen to where, where we both visited prisons in other countries. Khalil went to prison, prisons in Germany, and I went to prisons in Finland and Norway. And this was as part, part of our work as, as working on criminal justice reform. And pretty much Khalil and I are explaining to one another what we saw in our respective countries and what we learned from it and what we could take back to understand how we could possibly start to wind down mass incarceration in, in the United States. Yeah. And by explaining this to one another, I mean, and it's fascinating, like how do prisons operate so much better in a place like Finland? And what could we do that they do? And so while we're explaining to one another, listeners get to hear this too, and they get to experience this. I want to tell you, tell you a story. They left this one on the cutting room floor, but I want to tell you this one for Uh-oh. your listeners. So, <laughs> bonus. So, yeah, bonus, bonus. bonus Exclusive. That, that's right. So, so, so the, the show spends a lot of time describing in, in pretty uh, vivid detail how these European prisons go to great lengths to treat people with dignity and respect. 
and that the staff is very well trained, very professional. They spend years learning what their jobs are. And a big part of their job includes individualized support from you know, intake to understanding what happened, how the circumstance led this person in, into this terrible situation, what harm they might have done to others, and right. then what is the plan to get you out of here and to never return. So that alone is, is radically different. Right. right. I'll, I'll just cut in there, Khalil, and say like everything from day one is about, is about re-entry. You know, everyone is thinking about like this person is going to return to society. So the, the prison has to operate in a way with that sense of like, keeping it as much like society as possible to help for re-entry. Right. Go ahead, Khalil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so one of the stories that I told that did not make it into the, the episode is how I was standing in the quote-unquote cell of a German uh, young man, white guy, who has a, a, had a room that looked better than the college dorm room that I had as a sophomore in college. I mean, he had a wonderful, like, futon-like bed. Uh, he had uh, pictures of, of, of his favorite pinups. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. He had dishes, including silverware, knife, fork. Uh, he had the full uh, accoutrements of what you'd expect in somebody living in a little studio apartment that just happened to be behind barbed wire. But here's the thing. He also had a television, and I asked him what he watched on it. He said, oh, I'm so glad you've asked me because I like this show on MSNBC, Lockdown America. And he said, it's crazy how, how prisoners... Uh, kill each other and the things that happen with the guards on that show. It's crazy what I see. Your country is really, really in bad shape. So think about the irony of a black man standing in a white male prisoner's cell that looks like a college dorm, having him describe watching American television of a sensationalized racist television show that's showing black and brown people locked down in the United States. It made me think of this moment when I was in Finland and one of the prison administrators turned to us and said, with, you know, with over 2 million people in prison there, you must really lose happiness. Mm. And here we yeah. are a country that enshrines happiness in the Declaration of Independence, right? Right. And, and, this, idea, happiness. and, and, and this idea that, that, I mean, you know, it was baffling. Like, like what kind of country... Two million people locks up over two million people, and 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 the effects that that has on everything. Just the difference on the intake, already planning for release or reintegration into society, is almost mind blowing. It, it felt like you all were talking about college admission. Right now yeah. that you're here. You're going to be here for the next four years. How do we make sure that when it's time for you to leave, you are better, more improved? And to have that philosophy associated with a prison for someone who's been in this country for 40-something years is yeah. mind-blowing. That is... Yeah, just for your listeners that, you know, these are places that also believe in holding people accountable for the harm that they've done or for the offenses they've done. So this isn't, this isn't not holding people accountable. The loss of liberty is the punishment. You're not supposed to have additional punishments on top of the right. loss of liberty, which is what happens in the United States. Yeah. You don't just go to a prison and have to stay there for a certain amount of time. Everything you experience there is, a, is an additional punishment because it's so, it's so dehumanizing and abusive. And then afterwards, when you're finally released, you continue to be punished because you have this this felony conviction that, yeah. that ends up stamping much of your life. Yeah, yeah. The, the taboo, the restrictions, the, the, the loss of rights, all that. Listeners, hopefully, and, and I know you well, so I know that appealed to you. Go check out this podcast. Go give them a listen. And you know, honestly, we, we, don't, we don't stop on Wild Black often 
to talk about other content. We do a lot of teaching. And, and, and I'm so happy today to be able to bring a message to you that is both educational and from some additional content. So make sure you go and you interact with them. Go, go give it a listen and let us know what you think. Let them know what you think, right? And tell other folks. So yeah. one of the things that you all talk about on the podcast itself is about deeply divided America and inequality in this country. Mm-hmm. And you all have these conversations about these issues. And one of the things that I think is that so many people here struggle with these conversations, these fierce conversations, especially when you overlay the concept of race. So I'd love to hear a little bit about you all personally and how you all have been able to maintain a long-term cross-ethnicity, cross-racial relationship amidst the atmosphere that's been here for the last few years. I mean, I can't help but imagine you all can't you all can't agree on everything. How did you keep it together? <laughs> That's funny. I got a, I got a similar question um, from someone else recently, and it was framed this way. It said, so uh, tell me about the time when, when Ben committed a microaggression against you. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, you mean the time when he boxed me out and, 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 uh, and laid up on me and, and made me feel... Uh, all of the five foot three I was at the time. You talking about something like that? Uh, <laughs> that was yeah. a macro aggression. <laughs> that was a ma- exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's for us. It's a strange question because it, it's not that kind of relationship, right. and and maybe that puts it outside of the the pale of being able to model for people. You know, uh, as a historian, I've read a lot of biographies and autobiographies and memoirs. And Black people tell a very familiar story in, in so many uh, of these accounts, which is, you know, I grew up at some point, I, I had white playmates, and then at one point, one of them called me the N-word. Right. Um, or when somebody else did, they didn't stick up for me. And we were, you know, we were never friends again because that's the moment I realized that I was Black and that they treated me differently. You know, that's not our story, but here's, here's the thing that I think uh, matters for what you're asking. Look, you know, we we probably experienced the greatest strain in our relationship when we left the cocoon of our childhood. We left the neighborhood we grew up in. You know, we left the high school that had been our formative experience. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, a school where Black people were about 5% of the population, right. uh, an Ivy League school. And he went to the University of Rochester. He joined a majority white population. I became a, a, a minority for the first time. And, you know, for me, that was a difficult time because I really did for the first time come face to face, not only with structural racism, but with bigotry, with, with people who were free to articulate anti-Black views. And in that sense, I think Ben and I were more apart than together mostly because of distance. Um, He was experiencing something that I wasn't, and I was experiencing something he wasn't for the first time. The thing that I think helped us to overcome that distance, which wasn't about a microaggression or something he said or did to me, was that he went to South Africa after college. And, you know, he basically made a commitment to make part of his professional journey sort of understanding racism. You know, that became part of what he chose to do as a career. And the irony, here, here's one of the great ironies of our relationship. I went to college probably way more naive right. about how racism worked. I hadn't been well taught in school. My parents were kind of protecting me from all of this. And it was the sheer lived experience of college that kind of made me wake up. Right. And so when we when we came back together again in our early 20s, I moved back to Chicago about a year and a half after college uh, and he came back home. I remember actually picking this dude up from the airport like I hadn't seen him in in a long time. I picked him up from his transcontinental trip uh, back home from South Africa and and we had changed, but we had changed in ways that actually was preparing us for a new chapter together. 
Uh, and we've been, you know, we've been tight ever since. I love it. You know, Khalil, like I, I think about those college years and, and you're exactly right. Like we experienced totally different things and it was so different from our, our earlier experiences. But I also feel like we interrogated those experiences together. It wasn't like we, we never talked about them. Like our, our curiosity and our engagement continued. Um, amidst that separation and experiencing the world very different. Um, so that felt like part of it. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't a complete leap from senior year of high school to, to me getting picked up by you at O'Hare coming back from Cape Town. Yeah, if you say so. I mean, I probably at some point, I thought, man, you I don't know off. about this dude. Yeah, you I don't know. I, didn't, I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, I joined, I joined the frat. You know, I was like, blackity black. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. We, we spent, we spent every summer together every day. You know, we were like, oh, yeah, I forgot I about mean, that. every summer, every single day during college. So. Yeah. Okay. You're right. <laughs> Let me tell you something funny. Do you play, do you play bidwis or spades or both? Primarily spades, but I can play both. All right. So, so imagine this, every kid who grows up in a bidwis, black kid who grows up in a bidwis household knows that part of coming of age is the day that you join the grown folks table yep. for some bid. <laughs> yep. The day when you might get cursed out by your aunt or uncle um, who is twice your age and is now treating you like you stole something from <laughs> this person uh, because you either reneged or you, know, you want a bid that you shouldn't have won. Mm -hmm. And so Black folk know that experience. But one summer, Ben and I went on a straight-up bid-whist tour together and kicked butt and took names all over the south side of Chicago. So he's right, you know. I guess I was thinking about college uh, just from uh, September to May. You were like, oh, oh, man, I was thinking about that guy, John. My fault. It was the other white friend. <laughs> <laughs> my fault, my fault. <laughs> That's some of my other, other best friends. <laughs> I love interviewing you all because you like you make the questions flow so well. So like in that question that I just asked about, how do you do it? Khalil, one of the first things you said was, it's not that type of relationship. The reason I like hearing that is because it leads into this next question so well. We often talk about race as the problem, right? But, but I can't help but wonder if maybe race is just a thing that we hold up as the problem, meaning is it race that's really the issue or is it lack of connection, lack of socialization, lack of cultural understanding of our differences and therefore by extension, even our similarities that really creates the divide between people. So do you all think that it is indeed race or is it something deeper? Is it something different? Is race just the shiny object? That's a great question. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a kind of question that I actually teach and answer professionally uh, in a way. So, so, so the shortest answer to this question is, of course, it isn't race. Race is a tool uh, intended uh, to distract right. people from the scramble for resources uh, in which people of African descent were meant to be uh, the essential workers uh, of this nation. And uh, the way that people are socialized in shorthand to discriminate based on you know, what we understand as this, this racial identity uh, is the thing that we have inherited. It's the thing that uh, we, we live with. That being said, clearly people are still struggling over resources. They're still struggling over power. They're still struggling over rural versus urban identity. They're still struggling over religious sensibilities and, and different ways of understanding uh, the relationship of God to, to how the world turns. Right. And therefore, people will still find many ways to disagree with each other. Um, so connection is always contingent on how people come to understand what is their personal journey, what is their civic responsibility, what do they expect of others? And how do they imagine their own reach for success, either as a collective enterprise or as an individual, as an individual one, and often one that is quite selfish. And, and, and I'll just finish by saying, and my mama didn't raise me that way. 
So it doesn't matter. You know, in the end, it didn't matter that Ben was a white dude. What mattered is that his parents loved me like I was their own. Yeah. My, my mother loved him like he was her own. And at the end of the day, you know, we had to navigate a society that was set up for us to hate each other. I mean, for yeah. all intents and purposes. Yeah. 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 yeah race, race is the most glaring of differences. And so it's the easiest one. Yeah. And, you know, th- this is this is a, a somewhat more cynical take than when you just said, but I, I probably doesn't uh, conflict with anything you said, Khalil, is that, you know, you talked about that kind of okey-doke of race. But when you do that for hundreds of years, that becomes mm-hmm. our culture. Absolutely. Right. You know, right. so, I mean, what is culture besides lived experience? And, yeah. and so... Race both is and isn't, as you as you said right from the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the symbols. I mean, listen. I... If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. This is not a podcast or even a segment about Confederate flags and monuments, but all the connection in the world can't solve for someone who's been socialized to believe that a Confederate monument is something that is heroic and a form of heritage that's a heritage that is anything but white supremacy. I mean, yeah. you know, so, I mean, to your, to the broader implication of your question, when you say socialization, the work is, is really about socialization and maybe even more important than connection. Yeah, because if I'm connecting with somebody who's already been socialized to believe symbols of hate are are not important or just about history, then it, it's going to be hard to sustain a relationship. Yeah, I love that. What is culture but a system of rules and norms that determine our behavior and our ideas of what success looks like? I absolutely mm-hmm. love that. Um, Sounds like some wisdom. <laughs> that's, been, that's been spoken on the show before. I hear that. <laughs> you know, you get a chance to say a couple of things over a couple of times and you kind of committed to memory a little bit. So the, the place that I want to go after that is now that we've talked about the fact that, if we're honest, it's not really race. Never has been, right? If, if we're honest and we, and we look at your relationship, right? The fact that when I ask people, what do you love most about life while black? So many times people tell me it's the ability to communicate and speak without opening our mouths. It's the acknowledgement when I walk in the room, it's the head nod, right? It's this unspoken language. And, And where that question actually came from was, I feel like because you all grew up together, in the same community, in the same environment, that more than likely Ben probably speaks this language, especially inside that community. And I look at the relationship that you all have built, and I know you said you're not necessarily a model for behavior, but inside of that, it's the ability to connect on a deeper level, to understand community, culture, the symbols that you mentioned, that have allowed you all to build a relationship that withstands the very thing that is destroying relationships left and right around the country. And I know this is a bit long-winded. My apologies for that. But the reason I bring it up is because I don't think it is possible for us in this country as black and brown folks to find our way to our idea of what equity and equality looks like without the support, without allyship, without accomplices that do, not, that do not look like we do, that do not share our hue, that do not share our skin tone, that do not share our level of melanation. So the question I want to ask in all of that is if you all had to give advice to everyone listening on how they might be able to strengthen these relationships, what would you tell them to do? I tell them to be honest. Uh, I mean, and I'm talking to the white people. So the, when you said that you fundamentally do not believe that there is a better on the other side, uh, that there is 
some kind of future uh, where we could say truly in our hearts that the legacies of Jim Crow and slavery and systemic racism as we know it today have diminished beyond recognition, Mm -hmm. uh, that 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 is just not going to happen without uh, white people in this country choosing to behave and think differently. Now, the demographics do suggest that there'll be fewer white people, but I don't take any comfort that the wealth that is captured by the white population, even as its numbers diminished, won't give them the power to maintain a kind of dominance. Right. Um, and South we're already Africa's seeing an example of that. Exactly. Right. That's right. You said it. So, you know, we've already seen what the browning of buying into white supremacy looks like. Um, Donald Trump has certainly exploited it uh, with, with people who believe, like he does, that Central Americans uh, are a curse on the nation. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole replacement fear. That it's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, just because there will be more brown people in this country doesn't mean that various forms of anti-black and brown racism won't continue to thrive. So for me, thinking about what do you do in order to inculcate a different vision of equality and, and justice, uh, it has to begin with honesty. Mm. White people have to, to be honest about the choices they've made assumptions they've made. Uh, let, me, let me just finish with a very quick uh, story. I talked to the CEO of a company recently in one of these um, systemic racism one-on-one talks that I, uh, that I do. And the condition for the engagement was partly that he, as the leader of the company, would basically tell a story to his employees about why we were doing this in the first place. Why were we focused on systemic racism? Why was the company making a commitment to racial equity and solidarity? And he did something that most people in his position as white male leaders don't do. He said, I grew up, I'm going to just make up the city, Phoenix, outside of Phoenix. Nah, it's not a good city. Cincinnati. It's not the real city, but I don't want to, you know, put put the brother on blast. So I grew up in a suburb of Cincinnati and my parents told me, you can't go downtown. It's dangerous. There's too much crime. And he said he basically grew up with this message, not really understanding that his parents were basically saying, because that's where black people live. But he understood as he got older that that's what they were saying. And so crime and danger became a proxy for where black people are. Mm which in his own words, he had to admit had created in his mind a sense of hierarchy about what it meant to be around Black people. And for me, that is the beginning of making the kind of change in this country that is required because someone like that then has an opportunity to vote for a political leader who's going to focus on structural equality, who's going to put in place policies in his company that ensure that diversity and inclusion are not just lip service, yeah. but that HR policies are really about equity. And I could go on, yeah. but that to me is where the work is for the future. Yeah, and, and Khalil, we end up talking a lot about American exceptionalism and the dishonesty of it and the danger of it, of the country always talking about being the greatest. Mm-hmm. You know, that... that if we just put our mind to it, Americans can accomplish anything. There is no greater country on earth. And part of what you're describing isn't just an individual problem. I mean, that's a national problem. And we hear Joe Biden sort of slipping into that, you know, American exceptionalism rhetoric a lot mm-hmm. that it's okay to admit that we're an incredibly flawed nation, that we are not the best in a million different ways. And you will never get better, uh, both individually and collectively unless right. you confront those shortcomings. Right, right. I, I love what you just said. And I want to I offer one of these um, points of wisdom that I know Darius is, is good at for this show. Uh, because No, because I had this insight 
about six months ago, I was I was talking to a, a group of white people in one of these. This was different uh, engagement, but it was again like you know, here's how systemic racism you know works. And it occurred to me during the Q and A when someone was like, "Well, you know, what are we to do about it?" And those questions sometimes are meant to be, "Your analysis is all fine, well, and good, but now tell us what to do." Which sometimes I take uh, umbrage at because yeah. I feel like part of figuring out the future is also understanding where we've come. Yeah. And if we have an imagination about what we want to see, then we will figure out. We'll fill in the, the gaps. But here's what I told this person: I said. Racism is truly like an addiction. And you can't help somebody stop doing self-destructive behavior if they don't want to stop doing self-destructive behavior. Right. And so you have to decide, I don't want to be part of systemic racism. I don't want my personal prejudices to be an excuse for standing on the sidelines while I know that policing right now is broken, but defund makes me uncomfortable. Right. Or while I know that the schools in my district are unequal, but sending my kid to a school with a higher percentage of black students seems like the wrong choice for my kid. These are the choices that white people have to make. And you have to decide, like, I got to get off the racism train. I mean, it, that's just where it starts. And it, and that's not, again, ben, Ben's making the point about individual choice versus systemic change. But for me, connecting the dots when people ask this question, because too often individuals think like, oh, it's somebody else's problem to fix. But it really does mean that the agency many of us have starts with how we lean into our collective responsibility. Yeah. Man, I love that. Ben, did you have anything you, you wanted to add before I move on to the last couple of questions? So the title of our show is Some of My Best Friends Are. And, you know, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek title because we really are best friends, but it's also, it's also the thing that people say when they say I'm not a racist. Some yeah. of my best friends are Asian or Jews or Black or LGBTQ. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, part of that is pointing out that the kind of relationship that we have is nowhere near enough. Like, like, if you think, well, I'm going to go out and, and make a friend across a, a, a divide, you know, that's usually where people think they need to start. And I guess it is a kind of start. I mean, it is what Khalil is saying. But he was also really careful to say that it's an individual responsibility to think about your, your collective effect on things. So it's, it's, it's creating personal bonds, but, but that, it has to be much bigger than that. And we are, we're careful to point that out and it's, it's pointed out in the title, but I think, I think people want, you know, so much easier to, to say, make a friendship than it is to say, change the culture of a company uh, or, or change behavior in your neighborhood. And you can be overwhelmed by that. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean you don't, you don't continue to push. Yeah. Yeah. One question I love to ask here especially when we have conversations like this, and I, I'm going to make this the second to last question, is this. If you had a microphone that went to the ear of every person, we'll say in this country, white, black, brown, doesn't matter. They're over 18 and they have to hear you. They can't turn you off. You've got 30 seconds to say whatever it is you want them to know. And during that 30-second span, they have to listen. What do each of you say in those moments? Man, I thought that's what Wild Black was. I thought that was the connection you had. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So I, I, I would, it would depend on the moment. But when Donald Trump was elected in 2017, I wrote, for uh, The Nation magazine, an essay uh, that opened with a poem by Khalil Gibran. Uh, and your, your namesake, as you'd point out. My Khalil's, namesake. Oh, Khalil's yeah, Khalil's middle right. name is Gibran. The Lebanese poet who died in 1931, um, who, was, who wrote The Prophet. And he basically said, in a nutshell, that we are all woven together 
um, and a thread of uh, a cloth that makes us one. Right. And that if any part of that cloth is broken, then the weak threads um, are the responsibility of all of us. So if I had 30 seconds and it was really that important, I would turn to poetry and I would use Khalil Gibran uh, because there's a reason why uh, poets uh, endure forever. Uh, and any kind of prescriptive advice I could give would, would die on the, the, the vine of, uh, of not being all that memorable. Yeah, and if you, want me to, if you want me to read from it, um, you give me a second, I will. Please do. Yeah, I don't have a better answer than that. I like that you said turn to poetry, that it's, it's more powerful or song, uh, so, something that, that touches the heart. I have a sort of cynical response is that, you know, we're in this time where the idea that we're all part of the same tapestry, as Khalil said, couldn't be more clear with something like COVID. I mean, we can see how one person's harm or vulnerability affects everyone else. And yet, and yet this lesson is shown to us and we still can't see it. Mm. I feel like the moment we're in, it reminds me of, you know, Moses in Egypt and, and talking to Pharaoh yeah. in Exodus. That, you know, Pharaoh is told time and time again with the plagues to do the right thing. Yeah. And he still can't see, you know, that, that the, the coronavirus comes and we're supposed to act collectively. We still can't see. Then the Delta variant comes and we still can't see. It seems like the message should be, should be clearer by now. I agree with that completely. Mm. Man, that was that was fire, wasn't it? Uh, it was. All right, so I, I had let, to, let my people go. <laughs> exactly. Let my people go. <laughs> okay. That, I would there just I would just have you sing for uh, <laughs> for thirty seconds. <laughs> All right. So here here is here is here is a a, a brief excerpt from Khalil Gibran's poem on crime and punishment. Oftentimes have I heard you speak of one who commits a wrong as though he were not one of you, but a stranger unto you and an intruder upon your world. But I say that even as the holy and the righteous cannot rise beyond the highest, which is in each, which is in each one of you, so the wicked and the weak cannot fall lower than the lowest, which is in you also. And as a single leaf turns not yellow, but with the silent knowledge of the whole tree, so the wrongdoer cannot do wrong without the hidden will of you all. Mm. Like a procession, you walk together towards your God self. You are the way and the wayfarers. And when one of you falls down, he falls for those behind him. A caution against the stumbling stone. Mm. That was beautiful. And I've never heard those yeah. words before. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Sure. All right. My last question. Would you all please share with the Wild Black audience a little bit about what to expect coming up on Some of My Best Friends Are. And please tell them how they can listen and how they can network, interact, and follow each of you. We, we have so many great episodes coming up. There's an episode about the two Candyman movies, the one in 1992 and the one, the Nia DaCosta one that just came out mm -hmm. this month. There's an episode about critical race theory and the, black, and the backlash against it. You want to yep, take it over? Yep, yep. yep. There's, an, there's an episode where we read the Obama memoirs. Uh, we read Michelle's Becoming and Barack's A Promised Land. And we ask a pretty simple question. We say, okay, uh, Trump came and went. Biden's now president. And he's talking about white supremacy. So what are the Obamas saying about race and racism now that they're no longer uh, the first family? And so yeah. you'll have to listen to find out. Yeah. And, you know, we have new episodes every Thursday. It's on Pushkin, but you can really listen to it to anywhere where you get podcasts, whether that's Apple or iHeart or what else is there, Khalil? Or wherever you happen to be listening now. <laughs> yep, yep. Your friends, the guy yep. in the, driving the Uber. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and just to say one more word about the Candyman episode, uh, it, it is not film criticism so much as it is a way of exploring the content in these films uh, about why it is that horror is such an important vehicle for understanding uh, how black lives have been, have been experienced in America. Yeah. 
Cool. Fellas, this has been an amazing episode. It's always, always, always enjoyable when I can just lay back and have a great conversation. And this was absolutely that. Um, yeah, agreed, 100%. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, man, it, it was great. And, and if you don't mind, I, I'll say one thing that's kind of been, been brewing in me while we've been talking. Mm-hmm. Listeners, relationships, in my opinion, are our currency. More so than money, more, more so than often, I, I think, time. When I think about what I've been able to accomplish in the ways that I define success, I can come up with very few instances where relationships were not related to that opportunity. If anyone were to look at my LinkedIn profile, the very top, it would say, I really just want to change the world. That's a very, very true statement. And so while we've talked about relationships today and we've talked about the podcast, the thing that I want you to really walk away from this is with, I'm not telling you to run out and befriend the first white person that you see. That would just be weird, honestly, right? But what I am saying to you is don't squander the opportunity when it presents itself to make a connection that can change the world or your world, because everyone has the potential to do that. You just have to be ready and willing to let them or to be the one who changes someone else's world. With that, mm. I want to make sure that you all go and pay attention to this podcast because I think it's powerful. I think it's needed. And I think it's an example that we can strive towards. With that, Wild Black, peace. I'm out. Love you. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludacris. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.